Thank you. Uh, I've been serving as the co-chair for this meeting with uh, my brother Joe Pergolesi for the last few years. Uh, we, since we switched the times around a little bit, we definitely have seen an improvement in the attendance. Uh, thank you all for coming. I'm going to hand over the mic to Joe Pergolesi, who's my co-chair for the meeting. Joe, you probably all have seen Joe around uh, for the past 10, 15 years, I guess, um, since the pain week started. Uh, he is an anesthesiologist and the chief operating officer for NEMA Research uh, based in um, Naples, Florida. He's published, uh, I think, like more than anybody I know in the pain space. Uh, um, we have done a lot of work together. Joe is a, a wealth of knowledge in the pain field, uh, you know, from the therapeutics to all the way to the pharmacoeconomics and, you know, everything that one needs to know about in the, in the space and has a lot of experience uh, designing the clinical trials and running the clinical trials and analyzing the clinical trials and published quite a bit. Uh, Joe, uh, thank Thank you, Brother Shree, and it's uh, a pleasure to co-chair this session with uh, Dr. Nalamachu, who is really one of the premier clinical researchers in the United States, and that uh, really spans from the full market-aligned planning, so everywhere from uh, taking something out of the dirt, turning it into um, clinically meaningful, relevant uh, analgesic, and then life cycle management. So really an uh, honor to be here, and I thank all of you. Uh, just a couple disclosures uh, that are here on my slide. I work with a lot of different companies around the globe. I also work with various institutional investors on the buy and sell side as well, and I run an uh, incubator uh, for um, uh, analgesic development down in Naples, Florida. So these are our different uh, cost topics and presenters. Um, Dr. Rafa, uh, just a little background on him. He's a premier opioidologist, uh, started as an engineer and then into uh, pharmacology where he has his PhD. He headed up the Johnson & Johnson Neuroscience Drug Development uh, and then went on to Temple University where he's a, a professor and emeritus and headed their uh, pharmacological innovation center and now is at uh, University of Arizona. Bob is uh, noted as one of the top pharmacologists and cited in the literature and won that award uh, at a Temple University basketball game on the floor. So it's nice to have uh, Bob here. Uh, Dr. Rami Bin-Joseph is one of the uh, most noted health economics and outcomes researchers in the analgesic space, but be extends really beyond analgesia uh, with his uh, PhD. And um, Rami has been very instrumental in helping managed care markets understand the value of these various assets in order to better serve our patients. Um, Dr. Errol Gould, Errol is uh, a man of uh, many uh, talents. Errol uh, is, has a unique capability of uh, serving uh, the role in various pharmaceutical companies of many individuals and yet having the title of one. So everywhere from uh, medical affairs to serving on LMR committees to uh, being the head and director of, uh, of research, which he is now for one of the companies, and also working on the BD side. Um, again, evaluating um, assets and opportunities for companies uh, to grow. Dr. Uh, Charles Walmuth. So Charles is Charlie's a real phenom. He comes out of uh, Tufts University. He's doing a fellowship with me right now. Uh, Charlie is a Beckman Scholar. 
uh, already with uh, less than a year under his belt, has numerous amounts of publications, and uh, he's been doing a great job. He's even been in front of the FDA, um, and he's run a few different projects from preclinical all the way through uh, phase three trials. Um, so Charles is a real phenom, and I think we want to see how he performs under pressure. So let's uh, have questions for him later on. <laughs> and so with that, I want to start the program off. So these are the various learning objectives that I'm going to try to uh, address today and give us sort of a landscape of how we are and what's going on in drug development. FDA approvals from 1990 to 2018 are shown here. And, you know, I think in, in overall, the FDA has been doing a very good job at uh, getting assets out there and um, imp improving the opportunity for us to manage our patients, uh, particularly with uh, uh, chronic disease states. What should be noted here is that a lot of um, uh, approvals are based on uh, rare, often drug diseases. Uh, they also are focused on other therapeutic areas like diabetes, hypertension, and cancer. And when you look at the point prevalence of diabetes, hypertension, and cancer in the United States, and you compare that to the prevalence of pain, what you find is that pain really uh, uh, is much higher prevalent than all three of those. Yet, that are placed into new chemical entities and new molecular entities is much smaller. And the amount of approvals, again, is disproportional. So here you have a smaller point prevalence for those three diseases together. And when you look at the approval rate, it's three to four times more drugs that are approved for that compared to pain. So unfortunately, there is a gap. And now uh, this has um, resulted in even a bigger problem in light of the opioid crisis when um, people are using less opioids. So looking for new chemical entities, it's very, there's, a very, there's a scarcity compared to cardiovascular diabetes and cancer, even though it's a much higher prevalence in the United States. And more dollars are spent on those three than on pain. If you look at novel drug approvals, again, it looks uh, really like um, that the number has gone up 2017 and 18, and I actually think this year there's probably going to be a few, a few more than it. It's, trend, it's tracking that you're going to have um, more novel drug approvals. That's not true for pain, though, unfortunately. Now, we have a couple that uh, I discussed at uh, different lectures, like uh, the NGFs, uh, the NAV 1.7, 1.8, a couple others that are getting there, but sort of creeping on their way there. Drug approvals by class of drugs is shown here. And again, if you notice, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, oncology and infectious disease, respiratory type drugs. Um, but when we look at neurology, uh, again, this is all encompassing, and this is really where they put pain into the uh, the, the pie chart, uh, it's rather uh, small compared to the other three. 86 approvals thus far in 2019 with 18 novel drugs. So I applaud my colleagues at the FDA. It's no easy uh, task to do that. And remember that they did have a, a shutdown for a little while at the beginning of the year. So um, I think the groups over there and Bob Temple and everybody else are doing a good job, Janet Woodcock. Um, the database uh, can be um, observed here with the um, web uh, link if you have 
um, any questions uh, on that as well. And then basically they'll give you some good information. So if you're looking at um, this from the standpoint of what's being developed, what's been approved, and where you may uh, have interest, you'll be able to see that. Now, um, it's not just about uh, uh, drugs, right? Um, it's also about devices. And when you see here, again, the trend is such that more devices are being approved as well. And what we're finding is that these include 510K clearances and PMA approvals, including 510K de novos. So there's a lot of activity in the FDA. And um, the 510K process has recently been um, challenged uh, by consumers. And the 510K process, which allows for the ability to build off of a substantially equivalent device and maintain that you're no more than 20% different than that device so that you can use the legacy data to help support your application is now being challenged because there are concerns that if a device that's on the current market has certain type of side effects to it or, or uh, adverse events related to it, that the manufacturer of the new device should address those before just making a substantially equivalent different. And now it's turning more to this concept of incremental improvement, right? That you have to show that you're mopping up any pre-existing adverse events that may be with the legacy device and you're incrementally improving on top of that. So this has been a thought that's been around actually since 1976 and it comes up every five or 10 years. I have a feeling though that it's gonna get a little more traction. Clinical trials continue to expand, so all of those who are trialists, um, I think this is exciting, and I think you see this, more and more clinical trials. Unfortunately, within the clinical trial industry, there's a lot of consolidation. With bigger firms like Synosis and others, there's a lot of consolidation and there's a lot of specialization. So there are some firms that will tout if you're going to do an acute analgesic trial and you're going to use a bunionectomy model, you have to use us because we're the best. And that may be true, you know. Um, obviously, you set in legacy processes, and the more you do something, the better you can be at it. But I would contrast that to the approval ratings. So if, this, if one or two CROs are gobbling up all the business uh, for those phase three trials, well, how many of those drugs have actually been approved um, that that CRO managed? And I think that's where developers and drug companies, et cetera, need to do their due diligence because there may be other options or better ways of uh, improving the uh, legacy expectations um, of that other CRO. But as I said, they, they do continue to expand in the U.S. and outside the U.S., and it's encouraging that ever since 2001, the FDA has been bringing and allowing more type of international data to come in. You know, issues of heterogeneity um, come into play. So let's say you think I'm going to develop my drug uh, for the U.S. market. I'm going to do it only in India because it's less expensive there. Uh, the FDA may come back to you and tell you that there's issues of heterogeneity um, and it may not be representation of the U.S. population. So these are different things um, that has to keep be kept in mind. But certainly if you're a drug developing company, you may want to think about how you can... Um, uh, separate uh, the um, international versus U.S. base, and that may uh, improve your budget and also um, allow you to get uh, a quicker enrollments in certain situations. The types of registered studies are shown here. 
And as you see, uh, you know, you look at interventional um, and types of interventional and you look at observational. And again, I think what we're seeing is that um, there seems to be a very robust uh, amount and increase. So for those who are uh, looking to be more involved in clinical trials, well, there's certainly opportunity for you. And part of what the panel will do today is try to, again, um, give you a good understanding of where those opportunities lie. And hopefully for those people who are developing drugs or those people who want to develop drugs, what you walk away from today's meeting is maybe a little more insight and granularity. But what you also hopefully walk away with is networking and contacting amongst yourselves in the room and, and us up here in the panel and faculty. We, we really enjoy doing that. And that's why you see us running around like chickens without a head all through the meeting in the next four days. The number of registered trials over time, again, that's pretty impressive, right? So, so why is this? Um, is it proportional to the amount of new chemicals that are out there? Or is it proportional to uh, the amount of studies that are needed to actually get a drug through a regulatory agency? And these numbers haven't really been quantified. So if you have a cardiovascular drug, do you need, and it's a 505B2, do you need five studies? Do you need two studies? You know, that would be really helpful when you go to uh, seek financing, right? Uh, that's a whole other uh, topic, but certainly when you have investors, whether they're institutional or family funds, et cetera, they want to know what is it going to take to get this product across the finish line. Um, and that's very important. So I think what we're starting to see is that there's just an average number of more studies um, per, uh, per um, NDA or 510K or PMA. So just there, there's more information being asked. And, um, and that, what I could tell you is there's different information being asked too. You know, this is about clinical trials, but, you know, at the end of the day, if you have a, an IND and you submit your NDA, you want to know, um, you want to get an approval. The last thing you want is a complete response letter. So I would say to those people who are developing drugs, um, make sure your non-clinical uh, and CMC requirements are tight and that you understand and predict what the agency may be asking for you. And that's why we have Bob Raffer as part of our, our panel as well, because he is um, he's a real expert at that. So next up, I'm going to invite my uh, good friend and colleague, um, an expert, really top person um, in the analgesic field for health economics and outcomes research. So Rami, thank you. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Joe. Well, thank you for your time. I appreciate you guys coming. I still remember doing those uh, presentations with Joe on Fridays at 4 p.m. Do you remember those? <laughs> Basically, we had five presenters, and the total audience with the presenter was still five. <laughs> so I'm glad to see that we have a lot more than that today. Hey, I'm going to talk to you about the real-world data today. Uh, the rest of the panel, I'm assuming, are going to talk about uh, clinical trials that are randomized clinical trials. I'm going to try to give you a different perspective. Uh, I'm not going to ask you how many of you had to deal with payers, had to deal with, with formal reapprovals, how to get a, a product to a patient regardless of uh, cost. But if you talk to payers, they will ask you about real-world data. And it's kind of an oxymoron because if the FDA approves a clinical trial, 
What's wrong with that? Why can't they just use those data and make a decision? How tough is that? But pairs have a different perspective, and today I'm going to try to share with you some of that perspective. And uh, in disclosure, I'm a consultant to Inumentum and uh, Nima Research. And the learning objectives today, uh, you will learn about real-world trials, and you get some sense of how they are different than randomized clinical trials. I will talk a little bit about what kind of uh, endpoints you use in real-world data and how they are relevant to payers to try to get the product on formulary, or sometimes off formulary, because those trials can actually provide information that is different than what you'd expect. And there are obviously strengths and limitations to those kinds of trials, and I will discuss them as well. This is a great source. It was written more than 10 years ago, but if you are looking for a reference for my talk, this manuscript is really easy to read and provide many of the talking points that I will be discussing today. So let's think about the data landscape. We know about the preclinical studies. I know that Dr. Rafa is going to discuss those. We'll discuss the clinical trials. I'm sure that all of you are familiar with the Phase 3B studies and Phase 4 programs. Where does real-world data fit into this collection of trials? Most likely, you're going to find real-world data as part of a phase four trial. So those are trials that are being done after the product is available and registered and it's in the market. And at that point, what you try to do, you try to understand how the drug is being used in the real-world setting. I keep on saying real-world setting. What do I mean by that? Think about a clinical trial protocol. If you've seen one, I mean, there's usually stuff inclusion criteria, exclusion criteria. You're dictating to the physician how to treat the patients, how to diagnose the patients. Uh, you're dictating lots of uh, lab work, and uh, you have scheduled times when patients have to come in and get reevaluated. Those settings are very appropriate for clinical trials for registrations. However, when you impose them on a valued trial that is supposed to actually provide data for a decision makers about value, it's very hard. Think about a simple example. You have a product that is intended to be used in the hospital settings. And most likely, because of this product, patients might not need to stay overnight. But if you're doing a registration trial and you have a randomized clinical trial, because of the FDA requirements, you might need to keep those patients for two nights at minimum. If you have that kind of scenario, it is actually impossible to show that patients on this product are actually having earlier discharge and don't need admission at all because per protocol, they have to stay two nights. So this is where you, you see those types of real-world trials coming into play and provide meaningful data. Think about, again, about the types of patients that make it into a real-world trial. Those are basically healthy patients, right? I mean, they have the condition that you're interested in solving but many, many comorbidities, especially with certain comorbidities, are excluded from those trials. In real-world studies, you actually try to be inclusive and try to have very, very few exclusion criteria. So you actually have a wide, rate of, a wide variety of patients coming into the trial, and you're getting a sense of how relevant are those trials to a payer in their population. As you can imagine, I've ran many, many real-world trials in my career. <laughs> And it's interesting, as much as you try to make it as real-world as you can, and you might uh, contract to collaborate with a large managed care organization, 
and the results make lots of sense, and then you take them to another payer, I'm not going to say names, they can say, this is fascinating, but that's not done in my patients. You have to redo the trial. So you keep on hearing those kind of pushbacks, and you have to be very thoughtful about setting a trial that is relevant really to the wide audience that you're trying to satisfy, and pairs are not always the same. So what is the definition of a real world? Uh, there's lots of text over there, and if you have good eyesight, please feel free to read. I know that you can download the slides. I want you to think about two things. At least in my presentation, real-world studies are designed to meet the needs of payers. So this is the perspective that I'm taking. And think about them as anything that is not a registration trial, anything that is not a randomized clinical trial. Real-world studies, you do not control who are the patients that get the medication. It's wide for open for anybody who physician makes a prescribing decision. And you do not control the prescribing decision. Physicians are left to their own judgment based upon the encounter with the patients to actually decide if to, if to prescribe or not prescribe the drug, very similar to what happens in real-world situation, and that's why we use the term real-world. Uh, there are many other definitions of uh, real-world definition uh, studies, and I'll share with them in a second. Uh, other names for real-world studies uh, prospective observational studies. I'll try to explain what they mean. There's a lot of overlaps between them, but a prospective observational study would be a real-world study. What you do over there, you actually enroll patients. They agree to provide data that would be used for research, but, and you follow them moving forward from their enroll, enrollment point. Again, you don't control who, what treatment they get. You don't control who are the patients who are involved but you follow those patients. Prospective uh, studies would be real-world studies. Excuse me one second. Non-interventional observational study, uh, same concept. Uh, unlike the prospective, where you actually enroll patients, ask them to participate, and then they receive their usual care. In a non-interventional observation, actually patients are not being enrolled. Those patients either signed some kind of a form at one point in their treatment that allows their data to be used, or sometimes the data are so de-identified in big databases that you can actually observe patients without their consent. Those are perfectly ethical studies. A database studies, another name for non-interventional observation. Prospective registries that create a database, another term for real study, very similar to prospective observational studies. Retrospective databases created for other reasons. Think about the Framingham database. That's a big database that you can use to study cardiovascular. It's been widely used to study oncology, diabetics, and many other conditions. And obviously, medical record research. Again, those are all types of real-world studies. Okay, I gave you one definition before for real-world studies. Uh, feel free to go through the slides. You have it in your handouts. There are many, many other definitions. But the bottom line, all of them focus on the same concept that you don't control which patients get what treatment. That's really the whole concept of real-world studies. Let's talk about what are the elements that goes into a real-world study. Because I've seen many, many situations where colleagues who are a bit more junior, jump and do a study, spend tremendous amount of money. Those studies can be incredibly expensive or can be 
less expensive than randomized clinical trials, depending how you set them up. But, and they get the results, and they have no idea what to do with their results. They get tons of data. And I just told you a few minutes ago, you don't control which patient gets in. You don't control what treatments happens to the patients. Think about what happens. Clinical trial, you have very nice control. Very clean patients. You know the intervention. Very easy to run statistics. In real-world studies, actually, it's a lot harder because I just said we don't know who's getting what. So you have to be very thoughtful about sample size and make sure that you have enough power to demonstrate finding. Think about the decision. I keep on talking about payers. Think about the decision that you are trying to influence. What is the context of the decision? What is important to that payer? If you have a product that is intended for hospital settings, need be very thoughtful. Is that hospital is going to be interested in outpatient data? I mean, you could be spending a tremendous amount of time doing a nice registry that follows patients, inpatients, and outpatients, Bearing the results to the hospital decision makers, I'm going to tell you, this is wonderful. I don't know what to do with the data. They don't drive my part of the pie. I'm interested only in the inpatient part of it. In outpatient settings, you might be bringing the data to the pharmacy director trying to get access to a large national health care, health insurance organization, and you're looking at everything. You looked at hospitalization, you looked at medical devices, you looked at office visits. And the pharmacy director is looking at you and going, that's lovely, but I'm the pharmacy director. I understand that you're preventing hospitalization, but I'm the pharmacy director. I have a budget to manage. How did you influence my budget? I don't really care about all of those endpoints. So again, make sure that you understand the perspective. Uh, don't measure productivity if you're not talking to somebody who's interested in productivity. If you are talking to labor unions, Yes, please make sure that you measure productivity. It's very relevant for them. It's very relevant for employers. Make sure that your audience is basing healthcare coverage based upon questions of value. Because what happens in many cases, they actually do that based upon budget and affordability. And the question of value and cost effectiveness, I had many, many times, don't confuse me with data. It's very hard to understand that at the end of the day, many are very concerned just about the bottom line and how does that affect the budget. So be thoughtful about that. Make sure that you understand what is good. You're going to get a cost per quality of life saved. What does that mean? That's a very different concept. So before you're setting up your trial, make sure that you have a really good understanding what is good and what is not really good. Make sure what is the level of uh, cost per quality, cost quality of life, is a meaningful number that you have to hit as you're planning your trial. Uh, okay, let's keep move on. The type of outcomes. A uh, type of outcomes that you see in the real-world studies, other than the clinical outcomes that you'll see in a randomized clinical trial, because we, we do collect those, you will see economic outcomes. You'll see the direct medical cost. And those are costs that come directly from treatment. This is the cost of diagnosis, drug therapy, medical care, inpatient treatment, interventions, everything that goes into the act of providing care to the physician. Direct, non-medical, are actually the costs that come from transportation, uh, caregiver expenses. Those are still considered direct medical, direct costs, but they're not medical costs. And many people actually incorrectly refer to them as indirect cost, 
Now, when you think about cost of transportation, cost of uh, caregivers, those are really direct costs, but they're not medical. What people refer to as indirect cost, that's actually the concept of lost productivity from illness. So if a patient's you know, receiving an opioids for pain and is unable to perform the job fully or partially, that would be an indirect cost. There's something that goes into the equation. Be very thoughtful when you're discussing that element with the payer because it can very easily change the results of an equation to one side or another by including or not including this kind of a cost driver. Again, employees will be very, very interested in understanding impact of uh, opioid therapy on, product, on productivity of the workforce. Very relevant. Not sure this would be very relevant to a large payer, and they might want to see just the direct cost, and maybe the direct non-medical cost. Mobility and mortality often gets confused with quality of, often gets confused with quality of life. Not the same at all. I'll talk about quality of life, quality of life in a second. The concept of mobility and mobility and mortality, where we get when somebody passes away, they're done. There is no value added over there, and they actually stop consuming cost. But you think about products that save life. A life that is saved, sometimes everything is wonderful, and you get life saved, and the patient is in perfect health. But sometimes you're saving a life, and the patient is not in perfect health, so you get partial health. And we count that as a fraction of one year. So a value of one would be one full year of additional health. But if somehow we measured and realized that that patient is actually not doing well and they value their life now at half of a value, that would be the value of half remaining life year. So again, this would be considered as mobility and mortality. It goes into the questions of value and cost effectiveness. When you think about the denominator, Mobility and mortality usually go to the bottom part of the denominator. And just think about how confusing it is when you're starting to change denominators, saying, okay, it's not one anymore, it's a fraction of one. It changes the entire equation. And finally, I'm going to talk about humanistic outcomes. This is really about all about the patient perspective, their quality of life, the voice of the patients. I'm not going to try to address that. This could be a whole session about quality of life. But really, when you're doing, looking at value, always keep the patient in mind. It's not about cost. It's not just about cost. It's really about the perspective of the patients and how they experience the disease. Uh, benefits of real-world data. Effectiveness versus efficacy. In randomized clinical trials, registration trials, you get efficacy. Real-world study, you're getting effectiveness. As I mentioned earlier, it's very hard to analyze real-world studies because in those studies, per definition, you're measuring the results of multiple interventions. You might be interested in just the one pharmaceutical, but physicians are going to do whatever workup they choose to do. They might order all kind of lab tests, diagnostics. All of these go into the equation and the analysis. So you're measuring multiple interventions. Sometimes it's a strength because you get a wide range of perspectives and you can sub patients, but you also want to make sure that you just have enough sample size so it all makes sense. Uh, long-term benefits, those studies usually tend to follow patients long-term, especially when those are uh, observational studies, and you get a nice uh, understanding of uh, long-term results. Diverse population, I've talked about that, and I've talked about the broader ra uh, range of outcomes. And sometimes you do uh, real-world studies when uh, RCTs are not possible. Uh, 
FDA recently approved a breast cancer medication for male. It was a Pfizer medication based upon real-world data. There's not a single clinical trial that was done in male, and Pfizer still got approved and expanded indication to cover male. It was not possible to run a randomized clinical trial in that condition. FDA agreed to actually approve and provide a new indication based upon real-world evidence. So again, it is moving forward. Uh, limitation of real-world study. A selection bias. Very simple. Think about an example of a renal impairment induced by NSAID, uh, NSAID, consumption of NSAID. We all know about the condition. When you do a retrospective or real-world study, you might actually not observe that condition. You go, what's happening? Well, physicians know about the concern. When they see patients that have some kind of an impaired renal function, they might choose not to prescribe NSAID to those type of patients. So in reality, you might not see a signal. The risk is there, but if a physician are well educated, you have a selection bias, and those physicians are selecting patients who are not at risk, and therefore you don't see the effect. Uh, very hard to analyze. Make sure that you have a real good statisticians that can help you analyze those data. Uh, and again, it's very easy to run out of power in those kind of studies. And even if you run the analysis, it's sometimes it's very hard to explain those results to a decision maker to a managed organization. I'll give you some examples of uh, value demonstrations that uh, I would put in a clinical study looking at the inpatient settings. Uh, usually we look at reduction number of patients staying for, again, 48 hours is just one time that is specific to one molecule that I was working on. Uh, we look at reduction in length of stay, uh, reduction in duration of hospitalization, uh, reduction in uh, adverse events, uh, post-operative nausea and vomiting. A reduction in complication that could be very expensive and require reintubation. Again, things that are very meaningful to a pair in a hospital system. Sometimes you don't see them, and you have to look at proxies. And then you look at the time for first bowel movement. And you have to look at faster in initiation of physical therapy. All of those kind of markers that try to see maybe something's happening and the patient is going to be having a better outcome. I talked about uh, what happens in the inpatient settings, post-discharge, customary to actually look at the 30 days readmission and associated cost. The reason that we looked at the 30 days readmission is because hospitals often get penalized if patient is getting readmitted for the same reason as the initial discharge diagnosis, and that's something that is very meaningful. So not having that kind of a follow-up would not be a good thing. Looking at, usually looking at seven pay a day outpatient medical cost, uh, emergency room visits, office visits, and sometimes when we look at return to work and productivity. Again, the more items that you make, the harder and the more expensive that kind of reward study would become because now you have to find a way to contact patients, follow them for 30 days. You have to find a way to if they actually return to work and what is the productivity. So in conclusion... Randomized clinical trials are the gold standard. They're not going away, and they should not go away. But real-world evidence can supplement clinical trials, and in some occasions, just like with one, the example I gave you with the breast, male breast cancer, they can replace a randomized clinical trial. Again, just another perspective. And those are the references to my presentation. And thank you, Dr. Pogolesi. Thank you for inviting me.
Thank you, Rami. Okay, I'm going to uh, now invite Dr. Robert Raffa to come up, and Bob is going to give us a um, overview uh, on some of understanding analgesic clinical trials uh, from the uh, preclinical candidate um, standpoint. Well, good afternoon, everybody. You know, I was thinking as I was listening to Dr. Ben-Joseph's presentation, a few years ago, we would have started with my presentation on the basic science, and that was the start of the process, right? There was a recognized uh, medical need, and that's all it took. You know, we would go and discover some substances that uh, would meet that medical need, then we'd go into development, and then we'd go out into the clinic, into the clinical trials, and life was good. But as you heard, there's a lot more things to consider nowadays, and so that all impacts uh, drug discovery process. So all these things are taken into consideration from day one. Not only the medical need, but what are the economic environments that we're going to run into? What are the regulatory environments? What kinds of clinical trials need to be designed and for what purpose? What are the end points in addition to showing clinical efficacy? So what I want to do today is just give you some idea of how that impacts us in drug discovery and how that leads to some of the clinical candidates that you see, because there's now a whole variety of types of clinical candidates that can arise. So uh, I'd like to summarize some of the major reasons that compound enter into clinical trials. Not all of them are NCEs or new chemical entities. Some of them are modifications of existing compounds, uh, compounds with uh, new indications, and the like. And there's a whole variety of reasons now why compounds enter clinical trials. For those that are going to be NCEs, what are some of the sources uh, of those chemical substances that go on and how do we find them and how do we develop them? And how do we differentiate some of the technologies for identification of these compounds? So the goal here is to talk about, you know, compounds that get into clinical trials and whys. We had a symposium, was it yesterday or the day before, on some of the details of drug discovery. Uh, we want to emphasize today, you know, the reasons for the, why you see the compounds entering clinical trials and what's the goal of them entering the clinical trials. So, again, it works backwards uh, you know, what's the approval process? How are we going to approve, uh, you know, prove it? You know, what are the economics? And how does that filter back into what we actually uh, look at in the preclinical laboratories? So I was, I uh, used to work for Johnson & Johnson, uh, head of CNS uh, analgesic drug discovery. I don't know who that is. Maybe looks could be my son, I guess. But uh and then uh, I taught for several years at pharmacy school in Philadelphia, and now I'm involved with a couple of startup companies looking for primarily uh, non-opioid analgesics. So what are some of the reasons that uh, substances come out of preclinical labs and go into clinical trials? And again, we have to reword that. What are some of the reasons why we even begin to investigate substances in a preclinical laboratory. 
Again, it used to be it was really our choice. It was the basic scientist's choice. We would go to basic science meetings, and we would decide what are good targets from a biological perspective, and that used to be sufficient to defining what we worked on and what went into the clinic. And the idea was if we could think of something that would be a little bit better medically, that was sufficient. And unfortunately, that's no longer the case. We can all think of very good things to do that make existing drugs a little bit better or to have therapy that's a little bit better, but that's no longer sufficient. And so we have to look at other uh, reasons. So one uh, source would be a new chemical entity, and this could be a novel target, and there could be even uh, lots of reasons for doing that. Sometimes it could be simply for proof of principle. That may be sufficient justification for going into clinical trials. In other words, the expectation is not that it goes through all three phases and beyond and then become a marketed drug. It might be just sufficient to prove that the concept is correct. So I think a recent example on analgesia would be the bias ligand approach. Uh, you know, since that was completely a novel idea, uh, one doesn't need to go into clinical trials with the idea that the first one has to go the entire distance. Maybe just proving the principle would be sufficient. Uh, it could be a novel molecule within a known mechanism but, uh, again, it could be proof of principle or full, full clinical development. It could certainly be a new formulation. And I think with the opioid situation, there, this has been probably maybe the most active area in the opioid field recently in the same drug but a new formulation, specifically abuse deterrent formulations. And this could actually extend much beyond that in anything related to absorption, distribution, metabolism, or elimination, and I'll talk about a few examples uh, about that. Uh, in recent years, we've seen a lot of new routes of administration, certainly intravenous for, you know, NSAIDs, uh, intranasal, what else, uh, buccal administration, uh, et cetera, et cetera, all trying to explore the space and see if there's uh, advantages for going by that right route. So another uh, potential, uh, uh, you know, outlet for uh, substances going into clinical trials would be for a new population. So either the pediatric population or very popular nowadays geriatric utility, and that could be the primary reason for the compound going into trials. Also adverse effect management. So I think, you know, we've seen right now, you know, the use of uh, uh, OIC compounds, opioid-induced constipation, as a specific reason for going into clinical trials and also for the reversal of overdose, either opioid or other substance abuse. Uh, combinations have been around for a long time. They're a bit tricky, a little trickier than most people realize. Uh, they seem obvious at first. Uh, you know, you would hope to get greater efficacy with reduced adverse effects and more convenient, right? I mean, that would be the holy grail, and that would be nice if it always worked that way. Uh, unfortunately, it's a little tricky in that uh, you have to be able to show that, in fact, there's an advantage to the combination. 
and obviously you want to support it with a patent, and there are very precise mathematical ways of showing that there are, for example, synergy, and there are ways that look like it might be synergy, but really not. And if you claim it is synergistic, and you try to get a patent, um, and you don't do it right, then that patent can be overturned by somebody who's looking at it in a mathematical way. But it certainly is always worthwhile thinking about, but I think they're always way more expensive than people assume, particularly when you're thinking that if you have two known drugs that have been around for a long time, geez, we're just going to combine those two together and it's going to be clear sailing. Uh, the FDA doesn't look at it that way because you're claiming that the combination is different than either drug given alone, right? I mean, that's, that's the idea. And that's all well and good, and you may have data to support that, but the FDA is saying, well, that's very interesting. You're saying we didn't know this before. Well, maybe we don't know the adverse effect profile of that combination, right? Because that's what you're claiming. So you really have now multiplied the number of studies you have to do looking at adverse effects uh, that maybe you didn't expect. And, and they may make you go back and even do basic uh, toxicology sorts of studies to prove that it's okay. And one example that was a little disappointing was, you know, something like uh, oxycodone and the gabapentinoids. Uh, seems like a great idea, right? And if you look at the therapeutic endpoint, you do get beneficial effects. But unfortunately, if you look at the adverse effect profile, they get worse. So, I mean, to their credit, they looked at that, but a lot of people don't uh, think of that other half of things, and they get burnt after their uh, drugs are pretty far along. Another good reason for entering a compound in the clinical trials is just for a label change. So as we heard, you know, doing, you know, economic evaluation or other phase four types of things, or to look at scheduling to promote, a, you know, a more beneficial scheduling uh, number. And also for fine-tuning. So, you know, you may find out that your drug is operating mostly as a prodrug, and so you want to come along either with a metabolite or maybe one of the enantiomers and aracimate is more active, so you may want to enter the uh, trials for that. So I just thought I'd give you some examples of some of these uh, concepts. You know, a novel target, I mentioned the, you know, the bias ligand idea, so this was obviously a lot of interest in the preclinical world, you know, Nobel Prize, literally Nobel Prize winning uh, ideas. And uh, it certainly, there was a lot of uh, preclinical reason to believe that this might be true because the receptor molecule certainly huge compared to the ligands, not only the endogenous ligands, but is that Britney Spears calling me again? Tell her, tell her to wait. Uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of pre, you know, so the receptor is uh, really huge compared to not only the endogenous ligand uh, peptides, but certainly the small molecule drugs. And it would certainly be reasonable to think that there are sub-pockets of binding activity that may activate different second messenger uh, in uh, mediating the effect. And uh, in the case of uh, the G-protein coupled receptors, uh, there was good preclinical evidence that you could at least 
hopefully stimulate some of the second messengers, those that led specifically to analgesia, and you didn't activate so much the other second messengers, which hopefully were hooked up to some of the adverse effects, um, such as constipation, respiratory depression, and abuse liability. And so uh, there was a compound that was developed. So one could argue that one good, since you're first in class, that even going into proof of principle was uh, of value. Uh, another one that uh, we hear about, you know, uh, certainly at these meetings and have been around a while now are new formulations. Uh, buprenorphine, as you know, has been around for a long, long time, and a lot of people think of it as only um, a drug for abuse, but it was originally a drug for analgesia, but its uh, lack of oral absorption kept it from being known for that, and so now a route of administration makes much sense. Uh, another one, uh, another idea has to do with adverse effect management. So either, you know, treating the known adverse effect of the opioids or constipation. And so drugs have been developed now, which uh, I think are an absolute rare example in which a drug actually directly fixes the problem. I think maybe insulin is the only other example. So this is uh, a rarity and an interesting development. The other, of course, is the uh, treatment of adverse effects. Uh, I mentioned uh, combinations, and there is, uh, that's a nice abolagram. That's technically the way you really should be doing these combination studies. If you want to prove the point, if you want to get uh, a patent, that's, that's something uh, to remember is that to get a patent on a combination, you do not need clinical trials. It can be based on any sort of trial, animals, test tube, uh, or anything. But you have to do it right, and you have to anticipate looking at potential synergy with adverse effects. Uh, many sources of clinical trial, uh, clinical candidates, which include uh, fine-tuning, I uh, show here an example of looking at intravenous tramadol, uh, the idea being that, uh, you know, you don't have the first pass effect. And uh, in terms of sources of uh, compounds, uh, we covered this the other day, but there's all sorts of now ways in which uh, medicinal chemists are only one small part of it. You have um, computer modeling, so computers can not only test compounds in a model receptor, they can actually create molecules virtually and see if they fit or they don't fit, and only if they fit does the medicinal chemist actually physically make the substance. And then finally, this has totally changed. It used to be a sort of a sequential process from basic science to development and then on the clinical trials, and now it's more like on the right. Everything is occurring simultaneously. Everybody is talking to everybody else before you even start the process of getting it into clinical trials. So hopefully we'll have time at the end for questions, and I thank you very much. Thank you very much, Bob. Okay, well, now uh, we're going to ask uh, Charlie to come up. Okay. Hold on one second, Charlie. Sure. 
All right, uh, we're going to switch gears a little bit, and I'm going to be delivering a presentation entitled A Roadmap for Achieving Successful Publication of Clinical Data. So first, some uh, disclosures. Uh, I work for NEMA Research, a CRO, and we have contracts with uh, multiple pharmaceutical companies in the pain management space. So today we're going to talk about how to efficiently and effectively develop a manuscript some of the common pitfalls, how to select a journal, and uh, the most common guidelines for manuscript pub publication. So the goal of the presentation is to make it so you guys receive more of these when you're submitting manuscripts and less uh, reviewer comments. So as you guys probably know, the publish or perish paradigm is becoming much more popular. Um, it's uh, increasingly the norm. And if you want to be a PI, you're going to have to uh, publish a lot of papers to receive funding or keep your lab or keep running clinical uh, trials. So when you're preparing a manuscript, it can be helpful to select a couple uh, target publication outlets beforehand and uh, read, read the author guidelines. Uh, not all manuscripts have the same um, requirements for different sections or the same sections. And you, uh, you want to pick a title that's unique enough that it could only be the title for your manuscript. And uh, you often have to submit a co cover letter along with your manuscript. So a lot of journals have a uh, template that you can download for, for a cover letter, cover letter for that particular journal. So uh, first, you might want to think about why you want to publish your work. What does it answer? Does it answer challenging questions, does it address something novel, and uh, has it been addressed before in a publication? And then you want to decide what type of manuscript you would like to write, whether it's a uh, full original article, a review article, or a uh, shorter letter to the editor. And um, you're going to want to pay attention to the journal requirements for each particular journal in the guide of authors, and pay attention to the structure of the paper. So um, it's important to think about the per perspective of a potential reviewer when you're drafting a manuscript. Um, some common reviewer questions we've received um, are, does the paper contain sufficient new material? Is the topic within the scope of the journal? Um, are the conclusions substantiated by the uh, results? Is, th is the language acceptable? Are any of the data um, reiterated more than uh, one or two times? And um, are all the references included in the proper format, which can be a cause for uh, reviewer comments or, or even for them to send you your paperback. So when you're selecting a journal, you want to think about the, uh, the target audience, whether it's for um, uh, pharmacologists or MDs or basic scientists. And um, you think about the particular reach of the, each journal and um, you know, you want to think about uh, target journals, journals that might be a little bit um, of a reach for you, or journals where you feel like your, your work is um, of equal quality to similar 
uh, publications or recent publications by the, that journal. And it's, you also want to think about uh, your publication history. If a particular journal is familiar with your work before or you've served as a reviewer or an editor for that journal, um, they might give uh, a little more reverence to your work. So some considerations when you're picking a journal um, are the fees. If you don't have funding for your paper, it might be harder to submit to a journal with a larger publication fee, uh, whether there are print versions and you care about that or not. Um, and an important item is the submission to publication timeline. Uh, some journals take months to review um, or to even get you the first uh, set of comments back and to publish. So. If you're looking to publish quickly, it's important to um, go on the website and look at um, how long it takes for them from uh, submission to publication. Uh, you want to look at metrics for the uh, reputability of the journal or uh, impact factor and um, consider whether it's open access or whether it is a subscription-based journal. So open access is becoming increasingly, increasingly more the norm for publications. Uh, open access is basically when anyone who is online can read your full article and uh, usually is associated with a faster publication time and a larger audience. And uh, for subscription journals, uh, public publication time can be longer and the audience could be more specific. So if... Uh, you have a specific target audience, let's say, for uh, cardiology, it might be useful to publish in a cardiology subscription journal, uh, whereas if you want to reach a broader audience, open access might be more appropriate. So uh, I mentioned impact factor, which is um, a metric for a journal. It's basically the, uh, the number of citations per article uh, on average over the past year. And uh, a lot of people take issue with uh, impact factors, a way of judging uh, a journal, but um, it's still a useful metric. And um, there are a couple other uh, journal ranking systems up here, like the eigenfactor, which um, include uh, a weighted uh, calculation for the citation number. So um, not all journals are the same when it comes to the... Uh, the number of sections, you know, traditionally it's abstract, introduction, um, methods, discussion, and conclusion. But um, depending on where you submit, uh, there could be additional sections like keywords above the abstract, or uh, maybe the conclusion is not present. The abstract could either be structured or just uh, a number of words. So it's important to look at the author guidelines and think about where you're going to submit when you're preparing your journal or preparing your manuscript because that can save you some time when it comes to, to editing. So for example, um, here are some of the requirements for a clinical trial publication for uh, JAMA. So there are restrictions on the number of tables and figures. Um, the abstract has to be structured, so um, a reference to the introduction methods and so on. Um, a list of key points beforehand, which uh, might include you know, the question being asked uh, and the findings. And um, you also need to include your trial registration ID. And uh, it's important to reference uh, the guidelines or standards for clinical trial publications. 
the most uh, prevalent one is uh, the concert checklist, which you may be familiar with, and um, the uh, equator reporting guideline system, which we'll get to in a minute. So um, when you perform a clinical trial, you have to register it on a public database. So under FDA requirements, um, any non-phase one trial needs to be um, published in a, a public uh, database no later than 21 days after the first enrollment of a patient or of a subject. And um, that's important to pay attention to. There are various online registries like the, uh, the International Standard Randomized Controlled Trial Number Register. So there are various places where you can register your, your clinical trial, and that is important so that others who are working on the same thing um, don't exactly repeat your trial, or so that um, you can, it can help with recruitment of subjects and, and so on. So it's also uh, important to remember to uh, document your good clinical practice um, elements as, as you go. So um, you need to provide evidence that informed consent has been received for your, each subject uh, correctly. And uh, you need to state that those study documents like informed consent and the protocol have been um, approved by an IRB if there are human subjects in your uh, trial. So uh, some of the most common reporting gu guidelines to follow when you are writing a manuscript or checklists um, that uh, go over the, uh, the steps, who was recruited, what was done to them, how the data was analyzed are listed here. Uh, for a diagnostic study, the, the most commonly used standard is called STARD. And uh, we mentioned CONSORT, which uh, stands for Consolidated Standards of Reporting Trials. And that uh, it encompasses the, the key elements that are needed to be described when you're writing a manuscript or a summary of your, your clinical data. So online, there's uh, the Equator Network, uh, which stands for Enhancing the Quality and transpar Transparency of Reporting. And for the main types of clinical studies, they have um, a reference to the most common standards. And uh, that allows you, that allows you to uh, select, oh, sorry if the mic wasn't close enough, that allows you to select the proper checklist for you to reference when you're writing your manuscript. So you guys are probably familiar with the uh, consort flow diagram. So the consort is a checklist with 25 items that, um, that you, you want to reference to make sure that you ha are describing all of the key elements of a clinical trial as you go. And um, when you're publishing your clinical trial results, one of the, the figures or the key figure is usually the consort flow diagram, which outlines um, how many patients were enrolled and what uh, the treatment arms were, and so on. Um, when you're writing a manuscript, you might want to think about the, the author list. Um, as you guys probably know, the, the last author is uh, usually the PI, and the first author, the person who um, collected, collected the data, and, and so on. So uh, when you're selecting authors for your paper, you want to make sure that the authors meet all of the requirements to be an author, which um, are outlined by the International Community of Medical Journal Editors, which is a, a group of reputable journals and has uh, standards for um, 
various types of uh, manuscript elements. And so uh, to be an author, you have to make sure that you uh, have contributed substantially to the conception of the study or the collection of data and drafting the work and uh, the final approval and that you're taking responsibility for the accuracy and integrity of the work that's being published. Um, It's also important to think about uh, disclosures and acknowledgement. So if someone doesn't meet the full requirements for authorship, but they have contributed intellectually to the work, um, then you can thank them in the acknowledgements. And you also want to make sure that you reference all your sources of funding. If you received funding for a particular foundation or uh, a grant number, that if you have a grant number, you should list it there in the acknowledgements. So uh, you want to make sure that you also disclose your conf- uh, conflicts of interest. I think that uh, goes without saying. But um, if you uh, have received any support, you should list that, including sponsor names, along with explanations of the role of those sources, and also um, the extent to which the authors had access to the study data. So in terms of references, each journal has a different uh, format that they use, so you want to make sure that um, you're using the appropriate reference format. And there are also uh, lots of programs like EndNote that you can use to automatically format your references uh, or reference works, and, and that makes it a lot easier as you're, as you're going to make sure that you know everything is formatted properly with these programs where you can enter just like the name of the, the manuscript or paper that you're referencing, and it'll create the citation for you. So also, um, there's online identifiers for um, publication lists where you can select publications, like, uh, for example, on Google Scholar, and create a um, database of the citations as you go. And that kind of helps you save time. Instead of putting them all together at the end, you can collect them as you go. And, and that's helpful for preparing a manuscript. There's also uh, various online portals that um, can be used to promote your research, like ResearchGate and Kudos, where you can see the, uh, the number of times your article has been shared or downloaded and um, have a, a unique author profile. So promoting your manuscript is um, a big part of the process because you want to make sure that your uh, data and your results and conclusions reach as broad of an audience as possible. So part of that includes presenting your data at conferences before it's published and collaborating with KOLs. And then after publication, uh, you want to make sure that you take advantage of social media and, uh, if possible, publish open access so that everyone can see your your article. So ResearchGate is an example of one um, online metric system where you can see um, how many times your article has been read and and that sort of thing. And um, it can be very useful for tracking if your article has had the kind of impact that you want it to have. And if not, then maybe um, you should go back to social media and do some more promoting for it so that it can reach those that you, you want it to reach. Another similar metric system that uh, you guys might be familiar with is Kudos. Uh, it's very helpful for um, looking at numerous publications at the same time and uh, the metrics for those. So uh, if you're borrowing a figure or table from another article, you want to make sure that you receive permission. 
Um, it, if it's open access, there's usually on a journal website um, a source where you can uh, find the copyright uh, holder information. And uh, if you reprint with permission, you want to make sure that you state that or uh, if, if a figure is modified with permission. So when in doubt, uh, you should request permission anyways. I think it, uh, it goes without saying, but um, plagiarism is a big problem in the uh, publication field, and there's no acceptable level. And nowadays, with uh, the new technology, um, software that compares your manuscripts to millions of other text sources are available and being used more frequently by journals. Um, it's kind of similar to uh, like Turnitin, but um, one of those is Authenticate, where um, journal editors can take your, your text and compare it directly to a variety of online sources. So if you guys still feel like you, uh, you want to do more training on the steps that are necessary for publishing a manuscript, um, you should look at uh, Elsevier. They have an online training course that you can take where you can go through the, uh, the steps of creating a manuscript, or creating a manuscript and, and getting it published. So um, with that, I think I would like to pass it on to the next presenter. Thank you, Charlie. Congratulations. Well, uh, I'm pretty proud of him. Probably one of the youngest presenters here in Pain Week. And so now, Charlie's still got to teach me how to use a computer. That's the problem. Why am I not finding the clicker? Yeah, really. Ah, there you go. All these science guys. Huh? <laughs> okay. And now, uh, last but definitely not least, um, we have Errol Gould, and he's going to uh, walk us through uh, the roles of principal investigator. Errol, thank you very much. Thanks, Joe. Hello, everyone. So normally how this presentation all flows through the day, we start with Bob, then we get to my presentation. So we go from the preclinical state to how do you be an investigator to actually run a clinical trial, and then we get to Rami, who fills us in, and then we get to how to publish that results. Well, one of our speakers wasn't here, who showed about the clinical trial, so this is sort of a bunch of disparate parts that actually have meaning, because in, in the end, what's important is being informative to the scientific community and the medical community. There was an article published in July about uninformative clinical trials. Those are trials that actually result in data that is useless. So there are plenty of trials out there that are actually done that use humans. So now we put patients or healthy subjects at risk for no good reason because they don't add value to the scientific literature. One of those aspects is not being a good investigator. If you're not a good investigator and follow the rules, then your data at your particular site whether you're the only site in a study or you're one of many, becomes useless. And in that case, you have all kinds of other issues. The FDA will come and investigate you. You could wind up with a criminal investigation. So I'm going to just walk you through what it takes to be an investigator in case you're thinking about doing it so you have a full understanding of, of what it takes. So I'm an employee of Nalproprion Pharmaceuticals. Everything I talk about is my own opinion. They have nothing to do with this. They actually don't have 
a medication in pain, they're actually only one medication, and it's for weight, for weight loss. So completely outside the realm of pretty much this entire meeting. We're going to talk about that. What's the requirement for clinical investigator? What are some of the federal regulations? Why do they exist? Why are we constantly barraged with regulations from the FDA? And it's due to our previous transgressions in doing what were called clinical trials, but no one actually knew they were in a clinical trial, and what not to do. Because just as important as doing the right thing is not doing the wrong thing. There's all kinds of clinical research and basic science research. Bob talked about that benchtop scientist who, who discovers a compound. Then there's industry, the pharma industry, or even devices, getting that, that device or product approved. And that's one reason that industry does the clinical trial. The other is post-marketing commitments or to further the, the understanding of the product that they have. And then there's the, the investigator-initiated trial, something that you propose and you need some kind of funding, whether it's financial or you need product or the device, you go to the pharma company or the device company and ask them to help support your research. And then you're not only the sponsor, but you're the investigator as well. So what is the sponsor? It's the person who basically funds the research. They're not the actual conductor of the trial. My company does not enroll subjects at our office and treat them as part of the clinical trial. We use investigational sites to collect the information. So we're the sponsor. The investigator is the one who actually conducts the trial. They're the ones who administer the medication or implant the device or, or whatever is under study. What is that investigator? They, as I just said, they conduct the actual trial. They're the hands-on or they supervise a group. There could be more than one or two healthcare professionals in the office who are involved in a clinical trial, and they supervise that group. Then they'd be the principal investigator. There's always just one main person at a site. There could be lots of co-investigators, but someone has to be responsible for that site. They sign all the paperwork. They have the interaction with the company. They have the interaction with the IRB, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. But they also don't have to be a medical doctor. They can be a PhD, such as myself, who is now principal investigator. However, you have to have a physician involved who can do the, all the medically related activities that are associated with the clinical trial, such as administer the medication or do a, a, a physical. So no one wants me to do a physical exam, because then I would be like Dr. Evil. Setting expectations. What is required of you? The FDA has a series of guidances. The Food and Drug Act, Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, excuse me, also gives the rules of conducting a clinical trial. Those guidances, although they're guidances, they should be followed as they're written because that is what the FDA is going to look, look at. That's what if there's something goes wrong at your site, and there's potential a criminal investigation, they will go back to the guidances and say, did you follow these? And it's all based on previous transgressions. We're all aware of thalidomide. It was used for treat morning sickness by an Australian obstetrician that then became very popular here in the States. During that time, a lot of women were given thalidomide, 
as sort of a clinical trial, if you will, but no one was actually monitoring. There was no rules for finding out who got the drug, when they received the drug, were they being studied, was it efficacious for what they were looking for, was it safe? Nothing was ever looked at, and all of these then children were born with birth defects. The Kofor-Harris Amendment gave the FDA power to oversee clinical trials. So now you can't conduct a clinical trial without reporting to the FDA. The FDA has the right to stop your clinical trial if they think you're putting patients or subjects at risk. They also can do an inspection. And approvals for medications, devices, are all based on efficacy and safety. These are all changes that happen just because of one, one group trying to use a medication inappropriately without any kind of safety net. The other big case that, that led to changes was Tuskegee. They, they, they enrolled in a study, and it was a study, to look at black males who had or did not have syphilis to look at the natural history of syphilis. They were following this out to determine if black males should be treated for their syphilis. In the meantime, penicillin had already been approved for the treatment, but these men were unaware that they were in a trial, so there was no informed consent. They didn't know that there was an alternate treatment, not just being watched. And they didn't know that they could exit the trial anytime they wanted, because they were never told any of this information. Now we have informed consent. Informed consent is just for, to cover all of those things, to give people options and an understanding of what they're volunteering to be involved with. Good clinical practice. We're not talking about treating patients when it comes to good clinical practice. Good clinical practice is about following the protocol, recording the data appropriately, obtaining informed consent, and there's international standards so that you only have to do one study that can be used for the FDA, the EMA, and Japan without having to conduct individual studies at each of these locations, putting more patients potentially at risk if, in the end, the product isn't, um, well, the risk doesn't outweigh the benefit. So you do one study now, and everybody is, just, is on board with, with the concepts that were used to get that study approved, as long as you follow the international guidelines. Because, as I mentioned, clinical care is not the same as good clinical practice that's FDA regulated. You treat your patients as you need to. That's your job as a healthcare professional. However, being involved in a clinical trial, far more regulated. We heard earlier from, from Rami that clinical trials are very much confined to a condition, but the people are quote unquote healthy. So you have healthy diabetics in a diabetes trial. Well, we all know that diabetics typically aren't healthy, but you eliminate all kinds of exclusionary criteria to keep only those who you can focus your, your investigation on, say, diabetes or weight loss or pain. So that's why it's different from clinical practice, where you're treating the patient as you see fit with the medications as you see appropriate for that patient. And there's a lot of... Oh, good. There's a lot of influence on the investigator. As I mentioned, the FDA is watching. Because if you're the highest enroller in a clinical trial 
and it's used to submit for an NDA, chances are you're going to be audited by the FDA. They are going to come to your site, whether it's your hospital clinic or if you have your own clinical research organization, and they will audit your, your findings. They'll make sure the information in your source documents matches what was reported in the case report forms. They'll also make sure that you didn't white out anything, cross out things that weren't appropriate, didn't get informed consent. All of these things have the FDA's guide, have the FDA's power to investigate. The company that sponsors the trial also is watching you because it's their, their product on the line, their money's on the line, their reputation is on the line. When I was at GSK, when I started my career, a study had just completed for a medication and one of the investigators was using his own employees, which is a no-no, to do a, a look at an osteoporosis drug. And they, had, they were audited and they found out that the hands before and after, different hands, the bad hand and all the good hands, all the good hands were from his, his clinicians. So he went to jail. The data was thrown out. There's all kinds of issues with doing that. That's one of those no-nos, and we'll talk about that later. So, but there are a lot, of in, a lot of groups that are watching what you do to make sure that everything is done appropriately. So you're responsible for signing a, 52, a 1572. It, I'll show you the form. It's literally two pages that says you will follow the protocol, which is basically follow the rules. You will get informed consent. You will tell the IRB, the Institutional Review Board, if there is an adverse event, you'll get their approval before you even start the study. And that everything in your, in your CV is accurate. It is a law to sign the 1572, and if you lie, then you can go to jail. It's pretty simple. Follow the rules. Don't do anything wrong. You don't get in trouble, but there are repercussions that if you don't follow the rules. And biggest and most important thing, protect the rights and safety of the subjects. They might be your patients that you see all the time, it could be just people who are, you're enrolling into the clinical trial. But your job is to protect their safety. And know who you gave study drug to, when, and where it all is as an inventory. Again, we talked about informed consent in that IRB approval. And you, now it's a federal regulation that you have to be, go through an IRB training. There's the cityprogram.org is an online program for the collaborative IRB training initiative. This is to help understand what you have to do as an investigator. It's a requirement before you ever enroll a subject into a study, you have to pass one of these, these courses. 1572, literally two pages, takes only a few minutes to fill out but it has a huge meaning when it comes to what you're putting your name on the dotted line for. You're saying you are who you are, you can do what you can do, and you're going to look out for, you're going to follow the rules of the protocol, you're going to follow the rules of the IRB, you're going to inform the IRB, and everything in your CV is accurate, and it, you've signed and dated. And it gets collected by the company. The FDA doesn't want the form. They don't even take, collect your CV, although we do submit them, and is a big 
appendix as we go along when we submit for an NDA. However, it's not that. It's in case you get audited and you get in trouble. What did you say you did? What did you, what did you agree to? And did you falter? The IRB, the Institutional Review Board, it's an independent body made up of about five people. At least one has to be female, can't be all male, can't be all female. If there's a prisoner, prisoner has to be represented. If you're going to do a study in prisoners, which used to be a thing, now not, some, not as often do we do studies in prisoners. But you're going to follow the guidance. The FDA has a guidance regarding submissions to the IRB. You submit the protocol, the investigator's CV, the informed consent. The informed consent has to be written in a sixth to eighth grade level of reading so that people will understand what is in front of them. Also, when you review that informed consent with your potential subject, you walk them through it, you let them read it, you answer their questions before they ever sign that they're, they're willing to volunteer for the, the trial. The international guidelines have their own specs, but they pretty much match what the FDA is expecting. That you're going to submit to the IRB, you're going to keep the IRB informed. The investigator brochure you get from the company, you don't, it's not something that you have to generate. And it's a, it's a summary of all the data known about the product, including safety and preclinical information, up to the, typically up to the date that you're conducting them. The protocol, if they have ongoing studies, they're, they're not typically included in that. They could be as they finish up. And you have to submit your CV and other qualifications, why you should be an investigator. Why do you qualify? Keeping records, very important, because you could be audited. Records need to be kept at least two years after the drug is approved or two years after the clinical program has stopped for that product because the company decided not to move forward with it or the FDA gave a complete response that was negative, but at least two years. And used to be with paper, you'd box up the, the case report form copies and the background information for the subjects, and you'd put it in a warehouse, in your basement, in a closet, in another room. And then time goes by and you forget about it. I bring this up in case you all have been investigators before and you still might have this paper sitting around because I just got an email the other day from a site for a study that was completed in 2008. So now we're 11 years from the time they completed the study. The drug was approved in 2014 or so, and now we're, we're beyond. And they're like, what do we do with this paper? Well, they get to destroy it. As long as they destroy it, and they, stay, they verify that they destroyed it, then, then that's all you have to do. But you only have to keep it for two years, and they've maintained it for a lot longer. Actually, the drug was approved in 2010. Excuse me. Wrong, wrong, wrong medication. But it's 2000. So they had the paper for an extra six years before they even contacted us because it was in a closet. And the person was retiring. And they were cleaning out the office to sell the office. And that's what they found. Keeping good reports, you report back to typical reports to the company as an investigator are enrollment. How many people have you screened? How many people are on, in randomization? How many are ongoing? How many have completed? 
if they didn't make it through the screening process, why? If they didn't make it through the randomization, into randomization, why? Those are the types of reports and adverse events. Have you had a lot of adverse events of a particular kind or any serious adverse events? All get reported back to the company. They also get reported to the IRB. The IRB needs to be kept informed as you go along according to their, their own rules. And financial disclosure. So you fill out a financial disclosure. Do you own stock in the company? Mostly the financial disclosures, do you own stock or any kind of value in the company for which the product or, or device you're studying? And if you do, you re- and it's more than $50,000, you report it. A year after the study ends, you fill out the form again. The FDA does want to see those forms. There have been cases in the past, I can't think of any recently, where someone knew there was a positive result and then bought a whole lot of stock in the company knowing the drug would get approved. The FDA, the SEC, they, they frown upon things like that. So those are all the things you have to do, but what shouldn't you do? Because you don't want to over-delegate. If you're the principal investigator, you don't want to over-delegate to people who aren't qualified to do the tasks you've delegated them to do. You also need to make sure that you are, as the principal investigator, if you're using a third-party lab that's your personal lab because you just need to draw some simple blood work on each of the subjects, then you're responsible to make sure that that lab is up to code, they, they, pass, they have all their certifications, so you don't want to let that slide. No whiteout, no, that's from, from the old days when we used to use paper for the most part, but you don't want to make any changes to the data that you can't verify with some of the source documents. If you made a mistake and you put a seven instead of a six because there was a typo, you need to make sure you initial and date, there's, there's, there's checks and balances for all of that. You don't still want to cross out and, and change the number because you just want to change the number. You, that is not good. You don't want to change the protocol without permission from the sponsor. So you're conducting a study and you see that there's a, something you think you can do better. Well, you, don't, you follow the protocol. You can give some advice to the, the, to the sponsor and they maybe will say, oh, yep, we missed that because that ha- does happen. We are human. We don't see everything. And what you see in the clinic doesn't always match what we put on paper. And we can make the change. But we're responsible for that. We don't want individual sites making individual changes. Then the study is no longer a valid study across all of our sites. Don't backdate informed consent. Backdate signatures. Don't forget the IRB. Can't stress that enough. We talked about don't use your staff as investigational subjects. And make sure that your subjects have the disease state that you're interested in studying. And no destroying records until it's appropriate. So follow the current protocol. Protocols get amended all the time, and you have to be able to change with that. But as they get amended, you report that to the IRB so they are aware. You are personally responsible to either conduct the the investigation at your site or supervise those who are. Obtain, obtain that informed consent. Don't make any changes to the protocol. Keep the IRB updated. And always report your adverse events as appropriate to the, the company. You maintain those records, as we've talked about. Keep them available. That's the other reason for the two years. The FDA could come at any time to look at your records. Comply with all the, all the guidances and requirements. 
And don't forget those financial interests, not only prior to starting enrolling subjects, but a year after the study is complete. And with that, I will say thank you for all your time. Thank you very much, Errol. Well, that's uh, the end of the didactic uh, part of the program. So what I thought I would do is open up for any questions you may have. And um, Dr. Nalamachu has got to exit because he has another uh, session he needs to chair. But if there are any questions uh, for the panel, uh, please uh, let us know. All right. Well, then, with that, I want to thank all of you. I want to congratulate uh, this uh, very talented uh, faculty and Charles, your first uh, sort of uh, debut. Enjoy Pain Week. We look forward to seeing all of you again next year, and um, have safe travels. Thank you very much.